you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Here's what I'm going to let you know on the front side of the conversation today. You're in for a wild ride. If you haven't had goosebumps lately, you're about to experience them in your own journey. There is some overlap to my story, but there's a connection directly into your story and your future story. Let me tell you more about what I mean by that. My mother doesn't often give me books to read, and she even more infrequently says, John, you must read this. But a couple months ago, she gave me a book and said, John, read this be moved by this and be better because of this. And the name of the book was called Imagine Heaven by a guy named John Burke. I had not previously heard of that book or the author. I, though, feel obligated, mom, to listen to her. So I took the book home. I read it on a few flights later on that week, and I was moved. I was motivated. I was changed by it. And so I invited my producer, her name is Amy Loyette, to reach out to John Burke to invite him onto our Live Inspired podcast. And John said, yes, John said yes. And that's awesome news because his yes means you're gonna hear more about his story, his discovery, and your life story going forward. What am I talking about here? All right, here we go. John Burke is the author of the book I referenced, Imagine Heaven. He, as an agnostic, borderline atheist, did not really believe in a God, in a God that can be known, or in a heaven, ultimately, that you may find yourself once you die. And then his father had an experience that challenged him to look into that near-death experience. And so John, as an engineer, began that journey. He began looking into the stories and interviewing people from all ages, all cultures, all backgrounds, including doctors and college professors and bank presidents, airline pilots with these awe-inspiring experiences that bear striking resemblances to one another. None of them had anything to gain from sharing their stories with John, which makes the story and this book and this podcast interview with him all the more remarkable. My friends, today John's going to share that journey, his journey, and ultimately your journey from being a skeptical agnostic to a firm believer. Numerous gripping stories of near-death experiences will be discussed, not only what it meant for them, what it meant for John Burke or John O'Leary, but most importantly for you, what it means for you. Have you ever pondered what happens when we die? Is there a next step? Where do we go from here? Well, these are some of the questions we'll discuss today. It's one of my favorite conversations we've had. So here's my encouragement. Suspend disbelief for a moment. Buckle up. Get ready for a wild ride. As we discuss your family, your friends, those who've gone before you, those who will follow after you with my friends. His name is John Burke. John, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here today, John. There are folks that we talk about as a team that we need to bring on. There are people that I read that I just know I need to bring on. There's clients who send us books or speakers that we need to interview. And then there's a mother sitting with you at the dinner table. And she says, John, if you don't have this man on, you can't come out to our house this summer. (laughs) That is what happened a couple of weeks ago when my mother put back in front of me a book called Imagine Heaven by a guy named John Burke. I'd read the book 
a long time ago, was blown away then. And I, I can't wait to share this message with our audience today. So thank you for saying yes. Absolutely. For those who have not yet read the book and you had to introduce yourself, John Burke, how would you introduce yourself to this audience? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I'm a bizarre amalgamation of uh, engineer. I, I, I was an engineer and I'm a very analytical minded person that somehow God dragged kicking and screaming to leave engineering and uh, become a pastor starting a church for people like myself who are skeptical and had doubts about God and faith and, and all of that. And then in the middle of that, I, uh, I started writing about the things I was seeing him do. And this last book that I wrote in 2015, Imagine Heaven, has you know, blown all of them away by you know, a factor of 100. <laughs> but uh, it really is the culmination of, of my life story in many ways, in a bizarre kind of way. Yeah. And I guess that's what that's probably how I'd introduce myself. It's always nice when the introduction ends like that, because then people are like, dude, tell me more. What do you mean a bizarre way? So let, let's unpack what a bizarre way means, what led to that discovery for you of imagining heaven and ultimately what it means for us as listeners. I'm going to yeah. have you go back a little bit farther than just the last few years or nine years ago when you wrote the book, all the way back to childhood. Tell me where you grew up and what life was like for you as a kid. Yeah, I grew up in Houston. Great family, great growing up. My mom and dad were together and felt like, you know, I had the world by its tail, quite honestly. Something happened in there that I was not expecting. I I was, I, I'd become agnostic. I was very skeptical about faith and God and Jesus and the church. And I just thought the whole thing was kind of bunk because I had a lot of questions and no one seemed to have answers. And it just bothered me. It was like, well, then there's nothing to this. Then my dad was dying of cancer and someone gave him the very first book on near-death experiences. It, it coined the term. And, and that is when people clinically die and yet modern medicine resuscitates them, brings them back, or, or miracle, I don't know what, but they're brought back from death, and they talk about a life to come that they say is, was more real to them than this life. I, I see this book on my dad's uh, nightstand, and I read it in one night, and it opened my mind, because I was like, wow, okay, now this is possible evidence. I wasn't convinced. But it opened me up. And so I started to explore. And, and that was really a turning point for me to, to start to open up to the idea of faith. And, and that faith is not blind faith. I, I always, I didn't like that, that term, because I think, I think to a degree, we all have faith and we right. have evidence for the things we put our faith in. I like to think of faith, not as believing something that you, you can't see. But rather, faith, think of faith like trust or belief. And, and faith at the core is a relational uh, kind of thing. I mean, my wife and I stay together because of faith. We have faith in one another, trust in one another. We believe in one another. That's what keeps us together. It's not a piece of paper or, you know, pastor sprinkling some magic pastor dust on us at a, at a wedding ceremony, right? I found faith. That made more sense to me. And there's, and there's good evidence, just like I have good evidence to trust my wife. There's, there's good evidence. And that's what I started to find. So th this is late seventies. You bump into one book and it opens up your mind and your heart, but it doesn't solve the deal. And then you keep yeah. searching, man. And, and along the search, you lose your father. Where, where do you yeah. turn next? Because if there's only one book out, then what's your second book? What's your, your, your third near-death experience individual that you bump into? It's weird the way it happened. And honestly, you know, looking back, I believe there was a purpose for it because I, I even as an engineer, I was, I was out in California. I end up in the city where most of the doctors who are researching these near-death experiences in the early 80s, that's where most of the research was happening. So I, I keep running into these stories. And by that time, I had actually started to read and study the Bible. And 
I, for other reasons, had become convinced that there are good historical reasons to believe that God is real. He's really revealed himself. And, and so I, I, I had come to faith, but I was still curious, what are these near-death experiences and how do they relate? So I began this just inquisitive search. And over the last 30 years, I've studied, I mean, I know it's well over a thousand near-death experiences. I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people face-to-face. When I finally wrote Imagine Heaven in 2015, that's what I was trying to do, is I was looking at all of this research over 30 years and saying, okay, I, I, I think I see how the pieces fit together. And I, and I was showing how what when people die, the commonalities of what they experience, and this is all over the globe, by the way, this is not a small number of people. Yeah. The, the, the Gallup poll, they did a survey in the 80s and found that one out of 25 Americans has had a near-death experience. So we're, we're talking about millions, 13 million of today's Americans. Uh, but more recently, uh, the European Academy of Neuroscience came out with a study of 35 countries. And across 35 countries, they said it was more like one in 10. And we're talking about a global phenomenon. And by the way, this has been chronicled in over 900 scholarly journals. So chapter two of Imagine Heaven, I write about skeptical doctors and the afterlife. And I'm writing what the evidence was that not only convinced me, but convinced many skeptical cardiologists, oncologists, you know, these doctors who became convinced that they're, that the conscious our conscious really survives after death because of the things that their patients told them when they started to ask and really research. And, and so this has been published in the journal of the American Medical Association, The Lancet, Psychiatry. I mean, we, many, you know, 900 scholarly articles in peer-reviewed journals like that. So it's not a small little phenomenon. Well, you, you just shared more than a thousand cases and hundreds of interviews, and, and there's just so much to unpack here. And let's focus on that chapter two for a while. It's one of my favorite chapters because it's the cynics and it's the folks that have a ton of knowledge who are trying to prove this false. And that, yeah. that's if that's a conversion story, then that's one that I think is really worthy of paying attention to. So there's a fellow named Jeff Long. Is that right? A doctor, oncologist? Yeah. So just to back up a little, give you some context. So I've never had a near-death experience. I, I don't even have mystical experiences, really. I'm like the polar opposite. And yet the evidence has so overwhelmingly convinced me. And, and here's why. So when people say that they clinically die, so literally their heart stops beating, we're talking about no heartbeat, no brain waves. So there should be no registered any memory at all. And these people die not just for a few seconds, but we're talking sometimes hours and, and even longer. And yet they're resuscitated. And what they say, there are commonalities to that, that even though each experience might have differences and very importantly, each person is interpreting their experience differently. That's a very important little caveat as well, because the, the way I like to explain it is, Imagine if we're living this three-dimensional experience on a flat two-dimensional black and white painting in your living room, okay, or in this room. And we, we know up and down and side to side, we don't even know in or out. We don't have a third dimension. We can't even conceive of it. Death means separation. So imagine at death, you're peeled off that flat two-dimensional black and white painting. You're brought out into this three-dimensional room of color that was around you all the time, but you couldn't even fathom it. Now you're able to look back and see your world where you used to live because it was contained in this one. And then imagine after that experience of three dimensions of color being pressed back, back to life in your flat two-dimensional world, and you have to explain three dimensions of color in two-dimensional black and white terms. I'm convinced after interviewing these people, and many have said, Oh yeah, it is dimensions beyond what we've experienced. And so they're interpreting and they're gonna interpret it in their own worldview and their own ideas. However, what they report 
And that's what I'm showing in, in Imagine Heaven. I'm, I'm letting you hear what, what they commonly report and how what they report overlaps and how it relates to what God's been revealing about heaven all along for thousands and thousands of years in the scriptures. So one of the main overlapping commonalities is that when people die, they, they leave their body, but they, stay, they still have a body. In fact, they say, I, I was more me than I've ever been before, and not with five senses, more like 50 senses, 100 senses, and blended senses. They come out more alive than they've ever felt. And yet the other, the evidential part of that is that many times they're still in the room, usually up above, watching their resuscitation. Now, this is key, and this is, this is what I focus in on in chapter two, skeptical doctors in the afterlife, is that when people come back, they are able to report details of their resuscitation or what was happening around them in the accident or who was there, things that there is no way they should have been able to report on because they were unconscious or had zero brain waves even, and evidence that that was, that was true. So one guy, for instance, that I interviewed as a cardiologist, Dr. Michael Vosabum, said he first heard of these, read the same little book I read back in the late 70s, and he set out to disprove them. He said, I've never heard one of my patients who've had heart attacks say anything like that. So he then starts to interview his patients, ask them open-ended questions, because he's going to disprove it. Well, when he asks open questions, they start to say it. And he finds about one out of 25 as well. And after doing five years of research, he changes his mind and publishes in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, okay? Big deal. Um, he also wrote a book on that. And basically he was trying to scientifically show that this was false and scientifically was showing it was true. Now, Dr. Jeffrey Long, who you mentioned is an oncologist. He was looking for something else and happened to read that article in JAMA and said, that's not true. So he starts interviewing some of his patients and he finds the same thing. He's blown away. And then he actually sets up a website to begin to collect them. So he's now studied over 4,000 of them. I, I think Jeffrey might be one of the few studied thousands like I have. There, there are a few other doctors who have as well, but he has a whole database and he came to the conclusion that near-death experiences give us such incredible scientific evidence that it is reasonable to conclude that there is an afterlife. That was his statement. Now, now the reason for that, again, is that, for instance, when people die, they report these things that they shouldn't have been able to see. Uh, cardiologists uh, Dr. Pim van Lommel, who's a, a Dutch cardiologist, published in the equivalent of the Journal of American Medical Association, which is the Lancet uh, in Europe. And he published about a guy who comes in to a Dutch hospital. They found him in the park with his heart not beating. They didn't know how long he had been dead. They bring him in the emergency room and they're going to shock him, but they have to ventilate him first. And the nurse notices dentures. So the nurse takes out the dentures, puts them in the lower drawer of a crash cart. They shock him, get his heart going again, but he never came to an ER. Roll him out, put him in another room. A week later, he comes to out of this coma. And when he does, he sees that nurse and he says, that nurse knows where my lost dentures are. And he, he explains that he was there in the room and he describes everyone who was in there and what they were saying and what they were doing. He said, that nurse is the one who took my dentures out and put them in the lower drawer of that cart with all the bottles on it. Sure enough, that's where they found the lost dentures. Uh, you've got story after story like that. Another one of a hospital in Seattle and this person had, she had left her body, Maria, and she said she ended up traveling to other floors of a hospital and noticed a shoe and described the color and it was out on the outside ledge outside the window on like a second or third story and she describes a shoe and when she comes to tells them and they go and look and sure enough it's there in, in my new book i report on a, a woman in london who dies giving childbirth and 
when she is leaving her body, she's up near the ceiling and there's a ceiling fan, a long involved story. But when she comes back, she starts telling them all, you know, I've, I've been with God, I've seen these amazing things and no one will believe her. And she finally tells a nurse some of the things that nurse said and then says, look, get, get someone, get a ladder and go look on the ceiling side of that fan and you will see a red sticker and here's what it looks like and this is what it says. And sure enough, they get the ladder, they go up and they see the sticker on the ceiling side of the fan. Again and again and again. Now, that would just be, you know, oh, well, those are neat kind of stories to pass you know, and get interviews, right? Yes. <laughs> Except there have been scientifically done studies about these observations. So Dr. Janice Holden studied people who had near-death experiences and were making observations that could be checked out. So they were out of their bodies, they're making multiple observations and she could go and check them out with medical records or, or other ways. She found that 96% of their observations were 100% correct. Another 6% had some minor details. You know, they might have multiple observations. One person in the study was completely wrong. They were just making it up. And then she compared it to a control group of people who had had cardiac arrest and not had near-death experiences. And it was not even close. They were just making wild guesses like on what they'd seen on, you know, ER or right, some other television right. show. Let, let me follow up on this before we go, you know, even deeper into the tunnel, into the life of you and beyond. Mm -hmm. Because I really do want people to experience what those who have had the near-death experience claim. What I'm thinking, though, right now is some of our, our followers who are believers are saying, man, this sounds like sacrilege. This just doesn't sound right to me that, that you would leave the body and have your body and float above. This sounds like ghost or something, man. So for yeah. those now who are believers and they're saying that what, what's your response to them well that's why it took me 30 years <laughs> to write the book i had to study enough of them to begin to see the commonalities and see the differences and try to make sense of it and what i'm doing in imagine heaven is i'm showing how biblical what they're saying all around the globe actually is if you think about it I mean, there are many accounts in the Old Testament of Elijah praying for someone and being brought back from death, Jesus bringing Jairus' daughter or Lazarus back from death. Near-death experiences are not new to this century. Plato writes in The Republic about a soldier who was about to be burned on a funeral pyre and comes back, and he reports things very similar to what these people today are reporting. Missionaries from the uh, 15th century write about coming to indigenous cultures and how they had tales of these same near-death experiences. So these are not new. We're just becoming very aware of them in our, in our global culture. Now, also, I believe that the Apostle Paul may have had a near-death experience. So in, in Acts chapter 14, it says that he was in Lystra. And the, the city turned on him and stoned him to death, dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. And then his friends gather around him and pray for him. And he suddenly gets back up and he goes back into the city and tries again, which <laughs> that's crazy. I wouldn't do that. But, but here's what's significant. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, okay, this is written, this is a letter written much later about himself. And he says, 14 years ago, whether in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Why doesn't he know? Well, because like they say, we just, we're still ourselves. We have a spiritual body that lives on. And he said, I was taken up into heaven and heard and told things inexpressible. Hmm. Now, he also talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies are buried in, in, in weakness, but they're raised in power, dunamis. They're raising strength, and, and indie ears talk about those new powers, like telescopic vision or communication that's thought to thought, movement that's, you know, not limited like we have here. But he, he also said, you know, our bodies are buried in weakness. They're raised in power. They're buried a natural human body, but they're raised a spiritual body. So 
all this is in scripture, even the little things like I used to think about when, because this is a, a commonality I write about is, you know, many of these near-death experience people talk about how on the other side, they have like telescopic vision, like they could see for miles. And I thought, well, that's kind of new agey weird, you know, I don't know about that. Well, then you really start to study what the Bible says. And in Revelation 21, you know, John, one of Jesus' disciples, is taken up into heaven, he claims. And he is on this very high mountain, he said. And yet he's looking down on this city, the city of God, these walls, and he reads what's written on the foundation stones. How in the world, from up on a very tall mountain, could he read that? Mm. Except it's the same thing. There are a lot more overlapping details that show this is, this is the same. Mm. And this is not new. God has been talking about it all along. And for anyone with an open mind, you'll see. I mean, that's, that's why I get so excited about it. Because I was so skeptical. And I'm like, how? If anybody is willing to take the time to really seek and try to understand, I don't see how. It takes more faith to, de to deny it, in my opinion. Let's talk about some of the stories, individual stories that you write about. And you write about dozens, so we won't unpack all of them. There are yeah. several that deeply move me. I'm sure several that are maybe your favorites as well. One of my favorite things collectively you do is that you don't focus on people that have something to sell. Mm -hmm. So it's generally speaking, it's not a pastor that you're writing about or even a pastor's kid. These are folks who were pilots and CEOs and researchers who and, and skeptics themselves who risked everything in sharing this experience with you and with others. Yeah. So from those experiences, those that you interviewed and, and researched, share a couple of the ones that would maybe move us most. That is something I like to point out all the time in Imagine Heaven. I have over a hundred people in there, but they're, they're spine surgeons, they're bank presidents, they're doctors in their own rights who've had these experiences or you know, several commercial airline pilots, some people who weren't believers, and yet they're saying some of the same things. They're seeing and, ex and, and experiencing some of the same things. Uh, one of my favorites, that's the most evidential to me, are the blind people. Oof. I mean, because that's just like, okay, explain that. Because when blind people who, who have been blind from birth, so they tell me, I don't have any mental conception like you think I do. I've never seen anything. And yet when they have a near-death experience, they see and they report seeing the same things as sighted people. Vicky is one of them, you know, probably one of my favorite that I write about in Imagine Heaven. And Vicky died when she was 22. She'd been blind from birth. She's there in the hospital looking down at the at the doctors and they're losing her and they're freaking out. And she's like, I don't know what your problem is. I feel great. You know, don't worry about me. Um, she, she was a believer in, in God. She believed in Jesus. She was like, I, I know where I'm going and I'm excited. And she's gone. She takes off. So this is another commonality is that after they leave their body, they often travel sometimes in a tunnel, but not always, you know, that kind of became a, like, oh, it's this black tunnel and go to the light and all that. And it, it's not that simple. Sometimes it's a tunnel. Sometimes it's a pathway. Like they're going through space, but through but in another dimension. They come to a place of exquisite beauty, not unlike Earth, mountains and flowers and trees and animals and people, but exploding with a light that Vicky said is like like of another world. So Vicky comes out of for her, comes out of this tunnel, and she's there standing in this in this garden-like setting. And she said these people were coming toward her and everything there, the grass, the trees, the flowers were exploding with this light. And she, she said, I, I couldn't even conceptualize what light was like, but it was palpable. It was love and it was life and light all together. And it was coming out of everything. It was coming out of the trees, coming out of the birds, coming out of the flowers, and even coming out of the people who were coming toward her. Mm. Vicky is seeing this light that is love and life, and it's coming out of everything, which I know, it's, that sounds weird. It sounds trippy. I get it. I thought the same thing. 
until I really started studying the Bible's expectation of heaven. Do you know that Isaiah, who was a prophet, who Jewish prophet writing 700 years before Jesus was born, he writes in Isaiah 60 that in heaven there is no sun or moon, for God is its light. In Revelation 21, John, who also was, says, says he was taken to heaven, says there is no sun or moon, the glory of God is its light, and the Lamb, which re reference to Jesus, is its lamp, and the nations will walk in that light. This is exactly what people all over the globe say the light is like. It comes out of everything, and it's palpable. It's love, and it's life. Well, God is love, and God is light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. When Jesus was transfigured, they saw him more brilliant than the sun. I mean, all these things, they amazingly fit together. But think evidentially. How do you explain how people from all different cultures that don't even believe the Bible or know the Bible, as well as Christians who don't really know the Bible, and blind people, how would blind people ever get the idea that light comes out of everything in heaven? They would have never heard that light comes out of things on earth. It shines on things. And yet blind people consistently describe the light of heaven that way as well. Another, another commonality that people near-death experiences around the globe say is that the colors were so far beyond our color spectrum, colors we've never even dreamed of, and the shades of every color, thousands more shades. Now, you think about it, the light of Earth is the breakdown of the color spectrum of the sun. But if the light of heaven is the glory, the light of God, it makes sense that there would be colors far beyond in the color spectrum of the light of God that people are going to be seeing. And that's what they're saying. So it's like Earth, but times a thousand more brilliant and, and beautiful. So that's another commonality. Then a welcoming committee. So Vicky sees these people coming toward her. Two of them are Debbie and Diane. So she grew up in, in a home for blind children. And Debbie and Diane were also blind. And they had other challenges, too, that they dealt with. And they're coming toward her, and she said, I recognize them immediately, but they were in their prime. So they had died when they were 9 and 11. But she recognizes them as grown. Another thing that Vicki talked about is how the light is coming out of the people as well. Now, in studying near-death experiencers, you know, they say, we appear to each other sometimes just like we would expect completely. Although usually, everybody's about 30. But they can appear the way we last remembered them. So a grandparent, maybe the, la the way we last remember them that makes us feel warmth toward them or whatever. One bank president said, you know, he was wearing his favorite golf slacks and, and golf shirt. So we can appear just the way we, we always have been. But sometimes we appear with this light brilliantly shining out of us. This welcoming committee coming toward people, they, they commonly say it's their, you know, their, their relatives, their Yes. Parents or whoever's died ahead of them, or many times it's close friends, people have been influential in their life. They're this welcoming committee coming to welcome them, love them, and guide them in to this place. Jesus talked about this too. He said, you know, use your worldly resources to make friends so that when it's all gone, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. The welcoming committee. And that's what in the ears say all around the world. So Vicky sees all this, even though she's blind, and then she turns, sees this light that she says is brighter than the sun, but not hard to look at. That's how people commonly describe God all around the world. The light brighter than the sun, but mesmerizing to look at, and she sees that this is Jesus, and she runs to him, and he hugs her, and she describes him like you'd kind of think of Jesus, though she had no mental impression of Jesus. Shoulder-length hair, a trim beard, but she said light was coming out of his beard. And the hug was not like a hug we would have on earth. It was so much deeper than that. He tells her, isn't it wonderful here? Everything fits together. And then he gives her a life review. This is another common. So two more commonalities. People all around the globe they experience the same God. I don't care what culture they're from, what religion, a religious background, 
this is the same God. And this is what I'm really going into more depth in this new book I'm writing, Imagine the God of Heaven. It's coming out this November because I believe that God is giving these stories, these testimonies from all around the globe, from all different religious backgrounds, just showing that God has always been the God of all nations. You know, he's not one people's God. He's always been the God who's loved all people. He created all people for himself, for his love. And he's crazy about all people, you know, and that's what it shows. It shows so much hope, you know. So anyway, Vicky then gets a life review. And this is another commonality that in the presence of God, people all around the globe are given a life review. Another thing that Jesus said this, he said, there's nothing hidden that won't be disclosed. There's nothing secret that won't be made known. It's, it's all out in the open anyway. So time doesn't work the same. This is another commonality. In the ear say, there was, some, some say there was no time. Some say, well, there was time, but there was all the time in the world. You didn't, nothing was rushed. Now, this interestingly is exactly what Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, writes in 2 Peter 3, 8. He said to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And in Imagine Heaven, I, I geek out a little and go into engineering mode, and I talk about we experience one-dimensional time, but if they experience even two-dimensional time, that would have that feel to it. Yeah. And then if you had three-dimensional time, that would be all time in one, one point, like alpha and omega beginning and end all in one point, which is also what... Jesus said, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That's three-dimensional time. And you wrote about this, but you also talk about how, how this may sound kind of out there and maybe a little bit crazy and grasping at straws, except that science believes in more than one dimension. And in fact, oh. several of the theories require it for it to be proved true. So we believe in that, but we think this might be nonsense. Oh yeah, absolutely. Einstein's theory of general relativity perfectly describes the motion of large bodies like planets and all that. Quantum mechanics perfectly describes how the, the microscopic works at the atomic level, but they've never worked together. And this bothered Einstein so much and, and, and many scientists until two scientists actually proposed a theorem mathematically showed that if there's a fifth dimension, then quantum mechanics and general relativity actually work together. If you know anything about string theory, it's a theorem that there might be 11 hidden dimensions to our time-space continuum uh, for, for all the nuances of science to fit together. They haven't proven that, but our scientists are saying, yeah, there are, there are definitely dimensions we can't see. You've, you've been celebrating so so far how beautiful this is and much light and love and wonder. And and I just want to call out for a, a moment, though, you also said, and, and God is a God of justice. There's a story you share that is jarring around a fellow named Howard Storm, a, a professor traveling, I believe, in France at the time with students. Would you, would you share part of that story with our listeners? So in studying over a thousand near-death experiences, one of the things that you have to take into account is that they're not all good. So one study done showed that 23% of people coming forward talking about their near-death experience, 23% of them were negative or hellish. Other studies have shown potentially even, even more than that. And so we have to take that into account as well. I, I write an entire chapter in Imagine Heaven about those as well and, and the variations of them and what they mean and, and how they as well align with what Jesus said, you know, 2000 years ago. But Howard Storm was an atheist uh, college professor, tenured college professor, very important <laughs> when you think about why would he make this stuff up? He was in Paris his uh, lower duodenum ruptures his intestine, and basically he's got like five to six hours to live. Couldn't find a surgeon because it was a weekend in Paris. After eight hours, he dies. Now, he thought death was unplug the computer, the screen goes dead. That's it. There's nothing. When he dies, though, he didn't know he was dead. Immediately, he finds himself standing there in the room, and he feels great. He said, I felt wonderful. I felt like 
Superman. I had all these extra senses. Then this welcoming committee, he, he didn't call it that, but this group of people is there in the hallway calling to him, Howard, come with us. And he's like, he's confused. He's like, well, maybe these are the people who are coming to take me to surgery. And he says, I, I need surgery. He said, we know all about you. Come on, we've been waiting for you. Come, hurry, don't you want to get better? Now, the reason I point this out is pause a second. Because one of the things that confused me for many years is it all seemed good. Is that actually the case? And if Howard's story had ended there, in other words, if he had been resuscitated right there, he would have come back and said, atheists go to heaven, or it's all heaven, or it's all good. But that wasn't the end of the story. And I think that's very important to point out because these people actually deceived him. And he soon realized they were deceiving him and they forcefully took him into a place that Jesus describes as outer darkness and they turn on him and maul him. Now in that, he hears something in his gut that says, pray to God. And even in this horrific place, he's fighting that voice inside. He said, I don't pray. I don't believe in God. And, and yet, finally, he remembers a song from his childhood, Jesus Loves Me. And he thinks, even if there is a Jesus, why would he love me? I've, I've spent my whole life bashing him. And yet, in his desperation, he cries out, Jesus, save me. So he says that into that darkness comes this pinpoint of light. These people are gone now. Arms reach out. This, this light becomes brighter than the sun. Arms reach out, grab him, take him out of there. And in the presence of Jesus and these angels, he gets a life review. Now, Howard ends up being sent back. And two years later, he leaves his tenured professorship to become a Christian pastor because he read, he started studying all the scriptures of, of all the world's religions, and he, he found just what I found, that the Bible aligns in an amazing way, and, and he wasn't expecting Jesus, yet there Jesus was. Hmm. And he loved him unconditionally. So Howard came back, and two years later, he leaves his tenure professorship to become a Christian pastor. His wife, who's still an atheist, divorces him. He loses everything for it. How do you explain stuff like that? And I, in the new book, I'm interviewing an imam from Rwanda who had the same experience, and he's now an Anglican pastor in Rwanda, and he's had eight attempts on his life because it's not legal to convert from Islam to follow Jesus. I, I interviewed a manufacturing engineer who grew up Hindu, and he has this God of light and love bring him to this place where he describes what John describes in Revelation 21 of this city of God, just exactly like John does, but with other words. He says it was this giant compound with 12 gates <laughs> and this beautiful landscape inside, and I so wanted to go in. And anyway, it's a, it's a, a longer story than I'll get into, but he discovers as well. This aligns exactly with his experience, aligns with what he reads in the Bible, and he starts following Jesus. You are a pastor, which means you spend a bunch of your time in front of a, a large room of folks and online and doing interviews like this in front of a whole lot of people. You also spend some time bedside holding someone's hand as they're getting ready to take their last breath, or you're visiting with family who have just lost a son or a daughter or a spouse or a parent. What advice or encouragement do you give those folks who are about to take their last breath or a family member who are watching as one of their loved ones might take their last breath soon? Well, it's really simple. What these people tell me is that if you can imagine the person you love most or you felt the most love from, whether it's a child, a grandparent, a spouse, a lover, doesn't matter. Take all that love that you've experienced over your whole life, put it into one moment, multiply it by a thousand, they say, and then just keep it going. That's how God feels about you. You were created to be his child. The thing is, is that 
love can't be forced. And so God created us with a free will. And so we have to choose whether we want God and God's love and God in our life or not. And anyone who wants him gets him. <laughs> and, and so I would, I would just say, have you turned to God? The whole point of Jesus, which we could go into a whole other thing of what convinced me that he, not only was he historical, but he did what he claimed to do, and there's validation for it. But the point of it is that all of us have screwed up. We're all royal screw-ups. What all the world's religions have in common is we all share the same moral law. Okay, who's kept it? <laughs> Not me. We've all failed. And yet God in his love and his mercy, like we would do for one of our children, he took the fall for us. Mm. He sent Jesus to pay for all that so that all he could be just. And this is the key. So our idea of justice is eye for eye. You hurt me, I want you hurt. And yet God says, I love you so much, I'm going to hurt for you. Which, by the way, he foretold in Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. Go read Isaiah 53. Everything Jesus did on the cross was pre-written, and we have proof of it. And so he did that so that we could be confident that, you know, where we're going is in the life. And who we're going to is the love we've always wanted. And that's what I tell people. I say, man, you know what? You don't need to worry. If you've opened your heart to God, you have this, this life. Look, I mean, you know, John, better than most. This is a hard life. I've talked to enough people that even if they haven't been through all the trials and tribulations you've been through, everybody goes through stuff. And everybody feels the same, pretty much. Like, man, why is it so hard? And yet... This is just the first chapter of the rest of the book of life. We're just beginning. And that's what I like to tell people is, you know, the best is yet to come. Yeah. I mean, get ready, because this is, this is the worst part of life. Everything you love about this life, God created. And guess what? It only gets better from here. The problem with this life is that God is not making things go the way his will would be done. I'm going to read you a quote that I borrowed from your book uh, and then have you unpack it as to how do we live? How do we live in that light each day? I think it's easy on top of the mountain to have that mountain type experience, but eventually we come back down and eventually struggles mount and eventually life gets hard. So how do we stay up here? So here's the quote and then help us unpack that. Then we'll shift into the final seven. And then my friend, we will go forward boldly together. So C.S. Lewis once said, this is from your book, Imagine Heaven. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most about the next. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. John, the reason I wrote Imagine Heaven, um, and I know how weird all this sounds, <laughs> and, and it took me 30 years because I was I was resistant. I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to write about that. Yeah, I don't want to be one of those. But it was so clear that, you know, I want skeptics like I was to see all this evidence and just, just be open because there's nothing to lose and everything to gain. And then for believers, I think we, a lot of us, we have a horrible view of heaven and the life to come. We think it's some floating around, mystical, wispy, less real, less tangible, less physical. No, it's more than all of that. It's more of all of that. But, and the best thing to see is that this life is a continuation into the next. Mm. And this life is the shadow. That's the real thing. And when you realize that, the reason I wanted to write this is so that we live our lives from the right perspective because we go through hard things here. Sometimes it's really hard to do the right thing. Sometimes it's really hard to love those who you would rather hurt, right? These things that Jesus talked about of love your enemies, really? 
Well, you need a different perspective and you need help. The other part is God is not far, far away. God is with you right now. You know, that God wants to do life with you. Now, I'm not going to pretend like that's not mysterious. And it, it's, it's taken me a while to learn how that works. But he really does. And life with God begins now, and it can be an eternal source of life, a source of joy, a source of love, a source of peace that's not circumstantial. So John, let me just step in and then say, so where was that love and that light and that non-circumstantial relationship for my son with cancer or my sister who took her life or my spouse who passed away or our friends dying on the Ukrainian border right now with like, so for those who are listening to your voice and your hope and your joy and your certainty through the lens of their struggle, the one they've lived, the one they're living and the one that they'll step into again in the future. How do you respond for those of us who struggle with the, the profound challenges of the world? Yeah, there's not a simple pithy answer, right? Because if you're going through grief, if you're going through hardship, there aren't answers that make it feel better. There just aren't. You know, I've been through my own grief, John, you've been through yours, you know, we've all, but we can go through it with each other. And that is how God wants us to go through it. And he is in it with us. He doesn't deliver us from all the trials, tribulations, and hardships of life. And in Imagine Heaven, I write about that. I write about some people who have been through the most horrific suffering and abuse you can imagine. And in God's presence, they say some things that are pretty profound of what they experienced. And it made sense to them. But they are, they are also real about when they came back, it's still hard. And so what I would say is, Jesus last night on earth, and remember, Jesus claimed that he was God revealing himself in a form we can relate to. Not all there is to God, just the arm of God reaching in. But remember what he went through. He went to the cross. He at the hands of humanity and all the evils of humanity suffered. And right before that, the night before that, he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take courage because I've overcome the world. So he doesn't promise that we're going to be delivered from every trial or tribulation or difficulty. But John, you're a great example that when, when even in the most difficult thing, you follow God and he can use it for good. And he's using it for a story that's much greater than this life story can ever tell. And that's what I'm convinced of. You know, one day you're going to stand in his presence and he's going to show you the lives he touched because of your courage. I'm, I'm talking to you because it does. It, it chokes me up, you know, yeah. just knowing your story. And but that's true of all of us, right? We all have a story. It's different for every single person. But, it, but the good and the bad of that story, God will use to do something immaculate. And one day you will get a life review and you'll see. The life review is not to punish us. Jesus already paid for all of that. He, he forgives and he forgets. The life review is to reward you. It's to show you that every little act of kindness had a ripple effect through humanity. Every little thing you did using your gifts, your resources to help another person, to impact another person, to lead an organization with, you know, with integrity, because you cared about your employees, not just about the bottom dollar, all that he wants to reward you for. So live not just for this life. That's what I would say. John Burke, it has been a joy having you along for the ride today. My mother uh, will allow me back into her house, <laughs> not, before, not before I ask you what we call the Live Inspired Seven. These are seven questions that gather all of our guests together. We're honored to have you as one of them now. The very first question is, what's been the most impactful book you've ever read? Well, I would, the Bible, definitely, without a doubt. That, that's a big book. So if we had to go into- Do I have to one part within the Bible, where would you encourage people to go first? I would say the book of John. 
because it's Jesus. And I think Jesus shows us the unseen God in the most clear way we can imagine. What's one positive characteristic or one positive trait that you possessed as a little boy with an engineer mind growing up in Houston that you wish you modeled as brilliantly today in Austin? I've always been really creative. <laughs> so I was a musician and I've kind of lost that. I, I'm actually thinking in my latter years to go back to it. I was a drummer. So I'm starting to drum again. I play guitar and. I bet Kathy's like, loving hearing the drum set rocking in the basement. She made me get an electric drum set, but I'm <laughs> teaching my granddaughter. So I taught my son and she did. She grew up hearing my son and he's a professional musician now. So <laughs> it works. If your home caught fire and yeah. the little ones are out, the dogs are out, the animals are out, and you have an opportunity of grabbing one item that mattered to you, what's the one thing you would save? Oh my gosh, this is hard. No, man. I'd save my computer. Because I have all my photos and all my videos accessible there. So I'd probably do that. Well, you're practicing. There's the engineer. Mind. I'm practicing. Hey, you you asked. He's a pragmatic pastor who talks you about You want some romantic, it's one picture of me and my wife on the beach. <laughs> Sorry. If you could have that warm conversation on a beach on a gorgeous day, seated on a bench, and have anybody living or deceased next to you, who would you like to be seated directly next to? My dad. I haven't talked to him in, in years. I'm, I can't wait to have a conversation with him. What's the best advice your dad or anyone else ever gave you? Well, this wasn't my dad, but, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. You're going to look back and, and realize all the things that you thought were so important aren't and the things that you didn't are. <laughs> so just remember that. You may be given the same answer for this second to final question, but if you could whisper some wisdom to yourself at age 20, what would you offer as advice? It's going to sound funny, but Jesus said, do not worry. Don't worry. Your life is more than these things. And I would say to myself, John, he actually meant that. I, I didn't really believe it, even though I knew it. You're not alone. Yeah. It has been said, my friend, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? He was faithful. John Burke, you are faithful. You are a phenomenal teacher, and we appreciate you shifting from being an engineer, succeeding in the world, to uh, surrendering to his will and reminding the rest of us that there's, there's something for us out there, and it's worth learning more about. We're grateful for you. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the podcast. My friends, that is John Burke, the author of Imagine Heaven. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Well, my friends, if you enjoy today's episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, there's a couple things you can do right now. Number one, tell those people that you hang out with, that you work with, that you worship with, that you work out with, that you're hanging out at the Live Inspired podcast table, and they should too. So anywhere that you're doing that, make sure that you uh, let the audience that you're in front of know that there is a story of goodness, of hope, of inspiration, and of truth that they can tune into. Check it out, won't you? Make sure that you share the good news with them. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to learn more about near-death experiences, you can learn from a guy who experienced himself. His name is Dr. Eben Alexander. We brought him onto our show a couple years ago. Eben experienced a near-death experience years ago, and it altered his worldview. Hearing how his near-death experience changed his understanding of science, of the world we live in today, of the world that lies beyond this world might inspire and encourage you today and in the days to come. If you want to learn more about that interview or all the interviews that we've done on the Live Inspired podcast channel, why not let your fingers do the walking right now? Cruise on over with me at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. It will be in the show notes for this episode, but uh, we'll have a link also to Eben Alexander's conversation there as well. 
My friends, you know by now, but I'll say it again, it bears repeating. I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. My friends, the foundation is firm. The headwind is real, but the best is yet to come. And what better way to know that than to have heard the conversation we heard today with our new buddy. His name is John Burke. So for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. Helians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.